When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, and welcome to this ninth episode of Among the Ancients with Emily Wilson, a podcast series from the London Review of Books. I'm Thomas Jones, an editor at the LRB. Emily Wilson is Professor of Classical Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Hello, Emily. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Tom. And today we're talking about Virgil, focusing on the Aeneid, his epic poem and 12 books that tells the story of the wanderings of the Trojan prince Aeneas after the fall of Troy, his arrival in Italy and the wars he fought there that led, eventually, to the founding of Rome. The Aeneid self-consciously looks back to the epics of Homer and forwards to the Imperium, what was once known as the Pax Romana, that was established or imposed by the Emperor Augustus after a long period of civil strife at the time that Virgil was writing though the Aeneid is by no means a straightforwardly celebratory poem. So first, some context, historical and literary. Can you briefly, Emily, describe the Roman world that Virgil was writing in? Yes, so Virgil was born near Mantua in northern Italy, so far north of Rome in what's now Lombardy. He was born in 70 BC, so at the time he was born, Rome was still a republic. When Virgil was a young man, that whole question of what governmental structure would Rome have was falling apart in that Julius Caesar was trying to take over, building on his military successes in conquering Gaul or in dominating, trying to dominate Gaul. And in 49 BC, he crossed the Rubicon, sort of ending the Roman Republic by initiating this period of intense civil war during the 40s. The end of the 40s was the time when Virgil's literary career started, when he wrote his first set of poems, which is the 10 poems of the Eclogues, focused on an idealized countryside. But Virgil sort of fuses the idealized countryside based on Hellenistic pastoral poetry with an awareness of what's happening to the Roman countryside in an era when soldiers are being given confiscated land, the whole of the Italian countryside is being disrupted by terrible civil war, and in a period of intense confusion about what are the impacts both of foreign wars between Romans, Italian tribes, and the other peoples of the Mediterranean region, and also intense questions about what's going to happen to the countryside and to Rome itself. And did Virgil himself have land confiscated? We're told that by the biographies, but then, of course, they would say that because that's what the poems seem to suggest. So I don't feel that that's necessarily excellent evidence because it's what an ancient biographer who'd read Eglog 1 would say. So Eglog 1, it's, it's a, a conversation sort of or a dialogue between two Roman men. Two idealised people with Greek names, but who seem to be living in a a ver- an idealized version of Greece that seems an awful lot like Italy. So it's sort of in this um, between space, which is both mythical and historical. And of course, the between space that's both mythical and historical, both geographical and imaginary, is a space that all of Virgil's poetry inhabits, that it's both political and in this 
Hellenized world, which is also at the same time Roman. There are different la- layers of reality, one across the other. Um, so out of the two speakers, one is suffering from having lost his land and the other is rejoicing. So there's also in the, already in that first poem in Virgil's work, this sense both of loss and gain, both of hope of some kind of um, imperial saviour who might be there in Rome, which might be Octavian, but he's not actually named. Um, but then also a sense of, for some people, there's absolutely devastating loss and we're never going to get it back. And that, those themes of simultaneous loss and gain continue through through all his poetry. The Aeneid is drenched in those. <laughs> yes, sense of mourning <laughs> as well as sense <laughs> yeah. of triumph, yes. And the interlayering of mourning and triumph and of a sense of the past, which, the past, which is also the future, and of different literary antecedents. And then after the Eclogues, he wrote the Georgics, which... Again, influenced by Hesiod and also by by Lucretius. Yes. So in between the Georgics, the Eclogues and the Georgics, he seems to have met somebody called Mycenas, who was very important as a patron of both Horace and Virgil and was a close political, but then also culture war advisor of Octavian, the guy who would become Augustus. And under the patronage of Mycenas, Virgil wrote this this four-book didactic poem, which, as you say, looks back to the tradition of Hesiod's works and days, a poem about how to do how to get on with your farming and how to live live right by the gods of the countryside. And Virgil's version of, of the didactic poem is also informed by having clearly very closely read De Rerum Natura by Lucretius, and also having studied both philosophy and Hellenistic poetry as well as. Hesiod. So he fuses all these different elements together to come up with a poem that, as you say, is, is both has these elements of propaganda and elements of um, celebrating Mycenaeus as this saviour and Octavian as a saviour, elements of seeing the Italian countryside as somehow ma- magical, and then also elements of acknowledging terrible personal loss. So one of the most famous sequences is the Orpheus and Eurydice story, in which, which is told very much as a as an absolutely tragic story of Orpheus losing the love of his life and he's never going to get her back. But at the same time, that story is inset in a story about some lovely bees. <laughs> and Virgil loves bees. All of his poems have bees in them. Some lovely bees and a, a guy called Aristeas who's searching around to get his lost bees back. And luckily, he gets them back. So bees bees are happy, uh, even though the bees are, live in this very hierarchical political society in which there is no art or music or culture, but they have they have a kind of quasi-Roman orderliness and they're not in a state of civil war. And the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, that he, Orpheus, the musician, goes down into the, he's allowed down into the underworld to reclaim his lost love, Eurydice. But the deal is she can follow him out, but if he looks back, he'll lose her. So this date, the idea that there's a danger in looking backwards, and yet mm-hmm. Virgil's poetry is constantly looking backwards. It's constantly looking backwards, yes, and finding lost things there. I mean, Aeneas in the Aeneid also loses a wife and looks back maybe a little bit too late to look for a wife who turns out to be lost. And it seems if in looking backwards, Virgil is constantly finding images of what's been lost, even though he's also trying to search the past and the, and the world of myth for some vision of the future that could be triumphal or hopeful. And when he started writing the Aeneid, I mean, again, presumably these dates are possibly not as fixed as they're said to be, but supposedly he wrote it, began in 29 BCE, so a couple of years after the Battle of Actium, at which Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra, brought those that long period of civil wars to an end. 
Yes. So, so the Aeneid is very much a, a poem that responds to Actium. One of the big themes of the poem is the danger of super powerful queens. And one can see the influence of the idea of Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt, and the, the idea of a, of a very powerful foreign queen who could disrupt the um, the intentions and the imperial ambitions of a Roman man. In the in historical case, Mark Antony, but in the case of the Aeneid, it's repeatedly Aeneas being distracted on his journey by either the goddess Juno or the queen of Carthage, Dido, or the various crazy queens that he encounters once he gets to Italy. And that's just one of the many ways that Virgil is clearly meditating on very, very recent history at the same time as writing a poem set in a very, very distant mythical past, focused on a Trojan hero. And by setting it in the past, presumably that's a way, I mean, there, there are obviously dangers in writing too closely about his current, the current political situation that Augustus came to be celebrated as this great bringer of peace and all the rest of it. But he was also... He had defeated all his enemies, and obviously, making an enemy of Octavian is, of Augustus is a is a bad idea. So, there's a by writing about uh, celebrating Augustus obliquely by writing a poem set in the mythical past. He was able to be less celebratory than than he might otherwise. He could get away with things he might mm-hmm. not have done, might not have been able to otherwise. If, it, as it were, he'd written an epic poem about the Battle of Actium. Right. And I mean, presumably it would have been a terrible poem as well. I mean, it's hard to write. <laughs> it's hard to write very, very, very um, up to the minute um, political propaganda. Whereas if you can distance it in some way, then there can be all this complexity and all this political complexity as well as poetic complexity, which Virgil manages to to interweave literary complexity with ideological layers because every every different literary intertext has different implications in terms of what kind of leader is is Aeneas and then also what kind of leader might Augustus be. And we're told m- multiple different things in this poem about the interrelationship of cost to empire, of success to triumph. And Aeneas, of course, is a, is a deeply ambiguous figure and that he he has parallels with... Well, as you mentioned, with Antony as well as with Octavian Augustus, and then he's a Trojan, but at the same time, his position in the poem is similar to that of Odysseus or Achilles in the in the epics of Homer. It begins, as Horace said, all epics should in medias res and into the middle of things with Aeneas. He's left Troy. He and his Trojans that he's he's fled with following the, the loss of that war against the the Greeks, and they're at sea in the Mediterranean and. The goddess Juno summons a storm and shipwrecks them, and and they they seek refuge in Carthage in North Africa, the the new city where Dido, who is herself a refugee from the Eastern Mediterranean, Rome had also, after three very bloody and long drawn out wars, defeated Carthage, um, some a hundred years before. So part of Rome's rise to power had involved the defeat of Carthage. So there's both this 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 layering of different historical antecedents. Dido is both like an Egyptian queen, Cleopatra, but also like Carthage itself. So Dido takes them in and rescues them. And one of the things that Aeneas sees, he sees these images on the walls, these paintings of his own past. He sees the the Trojan War depicted. And maybe we should have a reading now from that bit of book one. And this is the Sarah Rudin translation. While waiting for the queen, he scanned with wonder the whole huge shrine, the city's wealth it spoke of, the toiling concord of the different craftsmen, and saw Troy's battles painted in their sequence, a worldwide story now, 
Atreus' sons and Priam and Achilles cruel to both. He halted, weeping. What land isn't full of what we suffered in that war, Achates? There's Priam. Even here is praise for valour and tears of pity for a mortal world. Don't be afraid. Somehow our fame will save us. With steady sobbing and great streams of tears, he fed his heart on shallow images. Thanks for listening to this extract from Among the Ancients, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description.